This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, I pray that by your Spirit that we would hear the voice of Jesus this morning, and that when we hear his voice, we would follow where he leads. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're new to Church of the Ascension, or perhaps just exploring Christianity, you might be surprised to hear that we're still celebrating Easter this morning. You see, together with many other Christian traditions, our church celebrates Easter not just on one Sunday, Easter Sunday, but for a whole season. And actually, Christians think of every single Sunday as a kind of mini Easter. It's a day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this is especially true of the season of Easter, which we call Eastertide. You see, Christians believe the resurrection is the defining event in history. And so for seven Sundays during Eastertide, we reflect on the new realities that it creates for humanity. Each Sunday we gather to worship the risen Jesus and we wrestle with what that means for us. And we talk about the types of people that we are to be, the types of relationships that we are to build, and the types of risks that we are to take as Christians. One way to summarize this is to say that Christians are Easter people. And during this season, we ask, what do Easter people look like? And so that's the question before us this morning. What do Easter people look like? And with this question in mind, we're going to look to Revelation 7 and Acts 11 for answers. And as we peer into the future in Revelation 7 and look back to the past in Acts We catch a vision of what Easter people look like. They look like united people, a people united across massive differences and united around Jesus. And perhaps nowhere in the Bible is this picture of unity more clear than in Revelation chapter 7. And so first we're going to turn our eyes to this great vision from St. John. In this vision, the future is unveiled before our eyes as we look at Revelation 7. What we see is all God's people through all human history, and they're gathered together. They're gathered together around the gravitational center of time and space, the throne of God and the Lamb. In Revelation 7, it's like we're getting a sneak peek into heaven. It's like our eyes are peering through a small keyhole of a door that's not yet opened up to us. And we see something amazing when we peer into the future. We see what we're going to look like in the future. Revelation 7-9 says this, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So what do Easter people look like? They look pretty diverse. People from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. 
It's like we're seeing all of the athletes and all of the spectators from around the world who gather together in a city for the Olympics, except everybody's there representing the same country. The people in this heavenly crowd come from different countries and from different cultures. They have all different colors of skin, but they're all united under one banner. They're all united under one king, Jesus. And it's worth pointing out if you read all of Revelation that these four designations, nation, tribe, people, and language, appear three other times together in the book of Revelation. Except every time they appear together, their order is different. I think this, taken together with the vision that we see, tells us that the glue that ultimately binds Easter people together is not shared language or culture, it's not having a common race or ethnicity, it's not alignment in politics or in denominations or socioeconomic status. The glue that binds Easter people together is Jesus. And as we look into our promised future, we see what Easter people look like. An uncountable multitude united across difference and united around Jesus. And we see that unity is a defining characteristic of God's people. Now, if Revelation gives us the clearest picture of what Easter people look like, Acts 11 shows us how this miracle of unity begins to take shape in human history. This section of Acts marks a pivotal moment in salvation history. Up until this point in time, in the early church, most of the disciples, most of the people who followed Jesus, were Jewish believers. These Jesus-loving Jews shared the gospel with Jews only at the beginning. They didn't share the good news of Jesus with non-Jews, what we call Gentiles in the Bible. So why? Why did these Jewish believers not share the gospel with other people? Well, one answer is that they connected most easily with people who looked like them and talked like them and ate like them and prayed like them. So they shared the gospel initially within their social networks, which makes sense. But there's also a darker side of the story, a darker reason why they didn't share the gospel with non-Jews. You see, Jews in the Bible view Gentiles as unclean, as other, even as enemies. They feared Gentile violence, Roman violence, and they feared being compromised by pagan culture. And so they leaned into their holiness codes, their dietary restrictions, the practices like circumcision and Sabbath that made them distinct from all of the other nations of the world. And all of this translated in the first century into Jews and Gentiles oftentimes living in the same cities, but living in completely different worlds. The first disciples saw the Gentiles as threats it was really hard for them to see Gentiles as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. But all this begins to change in Acts chapter 11, and so we're going to look at that together. We see how it plays out. In verse 19, we read that the disciples were scattered across the Mediterranean world because of the persecution that happened in Jerusalem when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed. And wherever these scattered Jewish believers went, whether it was Phoenicia or Cyprus or Antioch, they preached the gospel and they started planting churches. 
And at first, as verse 19 tells us, they spoke the word to no one but Jews. But new doors begin to open in verse 20. In verse 20, we see that some Jewish disciples started to talk to Hellenists, Greek-speaking Gentiles. They started talking to these people, these other people, about Jesus. And the Spirit of God was on the move, and a great number of these Hellenists, of these Gentiles, believed in Jesus, and they started to follow him. And so we see the launch of this multi-ethnic community of people, this multi-ethnic church. And I think the central passage, or the, the central point, rather, of this passage is that the Spirit is pushing the gospel beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel alone. But this morning, I want to dive a little deeper and look at a detail that's really easy for us to overlook in this passage. I want us to understand why Antioch, Antioch of all cities in the Mediterranean world, is the city where Christians first got their name. When we see this, we'll understand why unity is so important. It's such an essential factor uh, to the identity of Easter people, to the people of God. Now, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, sociologist Rodney Stark sketches a portrait of Antioch in the first century. Antioch, like most cities in the first century, was plagued by squalor and by disease and by natural disaster and by crime. This was common for life in cities in the first century. But what made life in Antioch uniquely terrible was its degree of ethnic hostility in the city. You see, Antioch was the quintessential segregated city in the Mediterranean world. The city was divided into 18 separate ethnic quarters, 18 separate neighborhoods where individual ethnic groups lived. Perhaps it was a bit like some of the neighborhoods, the old neighborhoods in Pittsburgh back in the day. And I don't think this is true about Pittsburgh, but in Antioch at least, some of the neighborhoods had to be separated by actual walls to keep people from harassing one another and killing each other because of their ethnic differences. Antioch was a ticking time bomb for ethnic and racial violence. It was always only a matter of time before another riot broke out and more people killed more people. Now, when you know this, you can see why it's such a miracle that in verse 26, we read Antioch, of all places, is the first place where disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. In Antioch, the segregated capital, the segregation capital of the Mediterranean world, the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus begins to break down dividing walls of hostility between warring peoples. The Spirit of God united people across differences and around Jesus. In Christ, enemies become family. And no one had ever seen anything like this. It was a phenomenon. And this new thing needed a new name. And they started calling these people Christians. Now, before this time, the followers of Jesus were called disciples. And before this, the community of disciples was called the church. But it wasn't until this moment in Antioch when this new thing happened that the disciples were called Christians. And I think this tells us that unity is a trademark of those who bear the name Christian. It's not just an important part of who Christians are. It's actually essential to our identity if we claim to be Christians. 
Now I want to take a step back and take stock of where we are right now. We've just peered into the future and we've looked at the heavenly vision of people of all stripes gathered together around the throne in Revelation 7. And we've looked back into the past in Acts 11 to the early church. And we've seen what people, Easter people, look like. Now what I want to do is look in the mirror and consider ourselves in the present. And I want to ask ourselves, how are we doing as Easter people? How do we compare to this heavenly vision and the new church that was launched in the segregated city of Antioch? It's an important question for for us to ask. And I think if we're honest, when we look around, we don't see a church that's united across difference and united around Jesus. I think we see a fractured body that's broken in more ways that we can count. There are so many divisions amongst us. And I wish we had time to talk about each of those divisions because they're very important. They're very important to address, but we don't have time to address all of them this morning. And so what I want to do with the time that's left to us is to focus on just one of the divisions, a very important one, the racial divisions in our church, the broader church in North America. Now, when I think about racial division in the church, like you, maybe, I'm haunted by the words of Martin Luther King, who famously said that 11 a.m. 11 on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. When people gather for church, that's the most segregated hour in America. That was true when Dr. King said it 60 years ago, and I wonder if it's still true. From the data I've seen, I think, we have made some progress uh, in this regard. I think we've made some progress since the 1960s. There are, in fact, more multiracial churches today than there were in the 1960s. But according to a recent Christianity Today article by Corey Little Edwards, the vast majority of churches in America, 84% of them, in fact, lack any meaningful racial diversity. And many of those who are uh, multiracial churches often confuse mere diversity, different looking people in the pews, for deep and true unity. I think we have a, a long way to go still in becoming the Easter people that we will one day be. And I think all of us know this. I think most of us would agree that the church really is divided. And I hope that most of us would agree that unity really is important. It's close to the heart of God. But I think that we would probably all agree that we're stuck in a state of inertia. Division is all most of us have ever known, and it's hard to imagine how it might be otherwise. It's hard to imagine how we can bring about change and get ourselves out of the mud. Francis Chan, I think, describes our situation perfectly. In his book, Uh, on church unity, he says that we treat our divisions in the church like we treat our national debt. I think this is a helpful way to think about it. Just like how we imagine our national debt, we know that division in the church gets worse every second, and, but it's just so big, and it doesn't always seem to affect our daily lives, and so we just live with it. We don't feel a sense of urgency to do anything about it. It's like our national debt. 
But when we see passages like Revelation and when we see the Spirit of God on the move in a passage like Acts 11, when we see what Easter people look like, I don't think doing nothing is acceptable for Easter people, for the people of God. And so this morning, I want to push us a little bit. I want to push us to, towards becoming the united people that we will one day be. And so I want to end with some ideas for how we might get the ball rolling at least, to get us a bit uh, out of the mud so that we can uh, make some progress towards greater unity in our church and in the church in America. So to do this, I want to introduce a paradigm from Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. And it's very memorable. It's an acronym ARC, Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. In order to make progress in forging greater unity, we need to develop or we need to grow in our awareness, we need to develop deeper relationships, and we need to be committed to unity. And it's important to know that these three things aren't sequential. It's not like you do them in order. You can do them all at the same time, but we're going to look at them one by one together in this, the next few minutes. So first, awareness. If we want to create more unity, fight for more unity, we need to learn about the problem. We need to ask why is the church so racially divided in America? I think if you dig into the history of Christianity into America, you won't have to dig very far to discover that the church isn't divided by accident. <clears throat> the divisions between black and white churches, black and white Christians, has less to do with worship preferences and style, less to do with doctrine, and much more to do with the legacy of racism in America. I think we see this, for example, in the founding of the first historically black denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal or the AME Church. The reason the first black denomination was started, the reason it was founded, is because white Christians simply refused to worship with black Christians. They allowed uh, black Christians to worship with them side by side as equals. So if you go back to 1787 at the start of the AME Church, you'll see Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. These were the founders of the AME Church. And they founded this denomination after they were literally yanked up off of their knees as they were praying in a whites-only section of a church. They didn't know that they weren't allowed to pray there, but they weren't. Their white brothers and sisters, uh, supposedly, were actively undermining unity in their church. And so black Christians felt like they had no choice but to start their own denomination, their a separate church, if they wanted to grow up into the faith to become the kind of people that God wanted them to be. Now, this is just one example. There are countless other very sad examples. If you go back and read about uh, the church in uh, American history, and I think it's really important to grow in our awareness of this. It's important to know our history and to face it. Part of the reason why it's important is because understanding the problem leads to better possible solutions. It's important to know our history, but it's important to also know that awareness can only take us so far. We can't just read our way into unity. Divisions can't be defeated by book clubs even though we wish we might be able to do it there. And this is because unity isn't just an intellectual thing. Real unity is forged through relationships, relationships with people who look different than us, who look different from you. 
And as you know, building relationships is far more an art than a science, but I'll talk about uh, what it is that I'm referring to here. Building relationships means knowing people's faces, knowing people's names, knowing their families, knowing their neighborhoods, where they live, where they go to church. Building relationships happens when we sit across the table from people over coffee or over meals so that we can share our stories and we can share our struggles and share our sorrows so that we can um, be involved in people's lives. We can be the type of people who know what's going on when things are going on. So we can weep with those who weep and we can rejoice with those who rejoice. Building relationships means getting close enough to people who look different than us, that we begin to experience some friction, some conflict, and we stick it out through the challenges. We own the things that we've done wrong, and we ask for forgiveness, and we receive forgiveness, and we extend forgiveness. And I'll tell you about one of the ways that I'm trying to build relationships. You know, I've only been here, actually this Sunday marks one year that I've been uh, at this church in Pittsburgh, which is great. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Uh, One of the things that I've tried to do this year is uh, to build relationship with other clergy uh, who look different than me, who care about racial reconciliation. And so uh, I discovered that there is a group here in Pittsburgh of local clergy that meet monthly to talk about racial reconciliation. And I asked to join the group and they let me in. And the group is made up of uh, clergy from all sorts of different denominations and traditions. And I know for a fact that we don't agree on everything. But we are trying to find common cause together in our pursuit of justice that's inspired by our faith in God. We meet monthly to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to pray and partner together as we seek justice in our churches and in our city. So awareness, relationships. The third thing is commitment. If we want to forge unity, we have to be committed to unity over the long haul. And so this morning, I want to challenge us to do two things as a church. The first thing I want to challenge us to do is to pray. I'm convinced that the only way that the church can make any meaningful progress in unity is if there's a powerful move by the Holy Spirit like we saw in Acts. We simply can't do this ourselves. We can't create unity ourselves. The only way we can make progress is through prayer, praying that the Lord would do a new work in our midst. And as a church, we know the power of prayer. We already know this. Every child who runs through the halls of our church is a testament to this. All the children you saw on the platform earlier is a testament to the power of prayer. You know, one of the favorite stories uh, that we like to tell as a church family is about how a small group of people from this church 50 years ago began to pray for kids to join our church. Because 50 years ago, Ascension was an aging and a struggling congregation that had no kids. And so a small group of people began to pray, and it took a couple of generations of faithful prayer, but the Spirit of God did do a work among us, did do a work in our midst. And now our church is literally overflowing with kids. As a church, we know the power of prayer. And so I wonder what might happen if we as a church, uh, what might happen in our church and in our city if we prayed with that same passion 
and that same perseverance for unity. The same passion and perseverance we prayed for kids, what if we prayed for unity just like that? Unity across the difference and unity around Jesus. So the first thing I want to challenge you to do this morning is to commit to praying for unity. And there's actually a group of people that have been praying for a couple of years every Thursday about this very thing. You can join them on Thursday afternoons and pray for justice and pray for unity. The second thing I want to challenge us uh, to this morning is to consider coming to an event that our church is going to host sometime this summer called a table talk. For the past few months, churches around the city have been hosting these events so that people can hear the story of Bethel AME, the oldest black church in Pittsburgh. During these table talks, you'll be able to hear how their church building was seized by eminent domain in the 1950s, and it was eventually demolished as part of the Lower Hill Redevelopment Project. This event, you can hear about the impact that this had on their church and on the broader black community in Pittsburgh. We're still working on nailing down the details and the date of the event, but you should consider coming. It would be a great opportunity to learn more about the legacy of racism in our city and the challenges that a sister church has faced. It'll be a great opportunity to rub shoulders with other Christians who might not look like you. And it'll give you a chance to consider how you might pray for Bethel AME and perhaps even partner with that church in their dream of reinvesting in the black church and the black community in Pittsburgh. Okay. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning. I want to bring all of this together for us by sharing my hope for our church and for the church in the coming years. Now, I'm not delusional. I know that this sermon isn't going to solve all of our problems. It probably won't solve hardly any of our problems. But my hope is that as we remind one another over and over again about what Easter people look like, we might come to believe that unity around Jesus is not just a pipe dream in the future, and it's not just a special miracle that happened in the past, but is in fact what God is calling his church to right now in the present. So that's my first hope. The second is this. The kind of unity that we've been talking about is simply not possible without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my second hope is that we would be open to the movement of the Holy Spirit, that we would be open to the Spirit doing a new thing in our midst today, that we would be open to the Spirit making us right now into the people and into the community, into Easter people, the kind of people that we will one day fully be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for having such a great love for the whole world that you draw all kinds of people to yourself. Thank you for the vision that we see in Revelation 7 and the picture of the Spirit on the move uniting people across difference around Jesus and Antioch. And I pray that you would work similarly here among us, that we'd be open to your Spirit, that you would be glorified in our midst. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus who is able to accomplish far more than we can ask or imagine. Amen.